Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Stephanie Everett, and this is episode 265 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Adam Markell about pivoting your life and career and what it means to be a resilient leader of your firm. If today's podcast resonates with you and you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, you can get the first chapter right now for free at lawyers.com book. Today's podcast is brought to you by Rankings.io, Back Office Betty's, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do the show without their support, so stay tuned. We'll tell you more about them later on. So, Stephanie, in the conversation we're about to have, uh, or we're about to hear, we've already had it, Adam and I talk about um, what it means to pivot and um, whether or not it's possible to stay within a law career and make it one that you are happier with. And this kind of resonates for me in particular because I know you've been you've been getting um, questions from lawyers who are interested in leaving the practice of law for consulting specifically, I think, right? Yeah, and it's a it's a tough one because obviously you and I made this pivot and we left <laughs> we left the practice of law to be consult well, you didn't think you'd be a consultant. Yeah. No, I mean it, it's you know, in talking with Adam too, like his pivot was I'm unsatisfied with my life, so I'm going to be a life coach, which in my experience of life coaches is a very typical thing. Like I'm unhappy with my life and careers and I'm going to tell other people how to order theirs. Not necessarily any judgment there. Um, Maybe being unhappy with it is exactly the kind of way that you learn how to be happy with it. And yeah, like here we am. I I didn't intend to own a part of a company that is teaching and consulting, um, but here we are too. And so I feel a bit conflicted telling lawyers um, not to leave the practice of law because that's that's what I did and that's what you did and here we are. So yeah, you know, but in you saying that, I, I recalled that when I decided to leave the practice of law, I was actually really happy as a lawyer. I loved being a lawyer, and I did some of these exercises that you often see when you're kind of doing some life mm-hmm. planning work. And I was looking at what else do I really love doing? And at that time, I was teaching women in Haiti leadership skills. I was coaching collegiate women on leadership and business skills that they could use in their life. And I started to see some themes there with my volunteer work. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And I really love doing this work. And how can I kind of create a new path for me that takes things I really love doing and applies it to skills and knowledge that I have? And how can I make that into a career? So I I guess I'd say it wasn't that I just thought the practice of law sucked and I wanted to, you know, I was more like, I wanted something different. I wanted to challenge myself in a different way. Yeah. I have, I have a lot of thoughts about this, honestly, because it, it does seem to come up a lot. I suspect what's happening is people get intimidated by everything that it's going to take to turn their practice around, or maybe they're just convinced that there's something about law practice that can't be fixed for them. And, and maybe that's true. Although I don't think so. You know, my, my own experience is part of what I have to go on here, and, and the experience of many of the labsters that we have talked with and other lawyers that we're friends with um, and, the, and that we know a little bit about their practice has persuaded me otherwise. I think Adam is right. I think it's very, very possible to pivot with your, in your own practice. And I did this before I wound up doing lawyerist, um, 
but I've also watched lots and lots of lawyers do this. I think it is very, very possible to build a practice, you know, with the constraints that you need it to have. If one of your constraints is, I never want to work more than 30 hours a week, you can do that. You just do it. <laughs> you know, if, if your constraints are, I want to have time for my family, then you can do that too. You just have to, you just have to decide what it's going to take. Like one of the things that I did was um, change from a litigation practice to a transactional practice, um, which ultimately didn't make me happy for other reasons, but um, it had nothing to do with the fact that it didn't work. It worked great. I think, you know, one of the places that I would start is like, are you really sure that practicing law is the thing that's making you unhappy? Um, and if it is, then you should probably leave the practice of law. And then I'm not sure you should turn around and coach other lawyers. Like, get out of the practice of law entirely <laughs> because you don't like it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe, yeah. What I what I tell people, because uh, like you said, a lot of people call me and say, hey, I love I love what you're doing. How could I do that? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And I always and I'm always very honest and transparent with people, and I'm happy to have that conversation. If you ever want to call me and ask me about it, it was hard. It was really yeah. hard. Um, I've been doing this for five years now, and we are, you know, financially we're crawling back, and we're finally feeling good about where we are as a family. But it was a financially tough decision. It was. It's been emotionally hard. I had to reinvent myself and figure out how to market this new practice and how to make it work and how to make it scale. I mean, I love what I do and I wouldn't trade what the, the work that I do has been awesome, but the path to get to where I am now has been hard. And I just tell people like, if you're just looking at what I do and think that sounds fun and cool, I want to do that. I'm, I always just like to tell people great, but also know that it, it has, it's, it's, it's hard to mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just as hard as turning your practice around, if not more. You still have to approach it the same way, right? If you if you want to start a consulting business or you want to leave the practice of law to do anything, whatever else it's going to be if it's not just getting a job, you have to figure out, like, what is your unique value proposition? What is it that you are going to bring to coaching or consulting or or your your new software company or whatever it is that is going to make you competitive in the market? Do you have a business model that actually works? You know, we see a lot of people who want to do consulting and aren't charging enough to make a living off of it. They're just sort of dipping their toe in the water. And like, if you don't have a plan for making a living off of this, then it's not an actual thing that you should be distracting yourself with. Go focus on the thing that makes you money, unless it just makes you happy to, to dabble. You know, do all the things that you need to do to have a healthy business. Uh, but don't, don't, yeah, it's not, it's not low hanging fruit here <laughs> for what it's worth. And I like the message too that, Let's figure out how to make your practice work for you. I mean, that's what we really enjoy doing. And, yeah. I've, and I've seen people turn it around. And yes, it's hard. But I mean, anything in life, I mean, I don't know, worth doing is maybe hard. Yeah. So I think about what would I do if lawyers died all the time? Um, not because I'm morbid or because I don't have confidence. Lawyers is doing great. But or, you know, if lawyers just didn't need me anymore and, and you know, it was time for me to graduate, I guess. So I think a lot about what kind of businesses I might want to get involved in, what kinds of things I might want to do. And, you know, one of the things is like I, the idea of starting a new business that could be as, be successful is so intimidating to me at this point. You know, because I've, I've done it. I understand what's involved and, and what the work that's involved. And one of the things that I that I really would dread about that is the initial startup phase where you don't get to work 30 hours a week, right? You you have to work 80 if you want this baby to, to grow and succeed. And 
I don't think there's a way to start a successful business without working harder than you were at your last one. And Lawyerist is finally at the place now where I get to work 40 hours a week. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't want to go back to working 80 again. And I don't know how to start a business without doing that. And that's, that's one of the things that I think about a fair amount is, well, shit, how would I, how would I go about doing that? Um, and I, I have a whole sheet of potential future business ideas because that's just the way my brain works. But, um, but I'm intimidated by all of them. <laughs> and I think if you're not intimidated, then you're not being realistic. I guess is where I'm going with that. Yeah. You know, maybe what I want to leave our listeners with, if if you're in the thick of it and it feels like a struggle and it feels like, you know, you're kind of in the, the mud part of owning a business, mm-hmm. we get you. We've been there with our own businesses. And mm-hmm. and sometimes it's nice to just hear that. I, I see that with lobsters all the time. They'll just get on the phone with each other and someone will be like, oh, my God, I thought I was the only one. And it's like, no, <laughs> we are a band together. But there, you know, but you can do this. You're tough and you're strong and you can figure it out. And it doesn't have to be this hard all the yeah. time. And actually, this is, it's going to segue nicely into my conversation with Adam because um, one of the things we're going to talk about is like this idea that you should just bail. Like it, if you're thinking about leaving the practice of law just because you want to run away, I think that's where Adam's message is going to be helpful, the most helpful to you because you should never do anything without a plan. And you, running away without a plan is is a bad idea. And so Adam and I will talk more about that. And, and he gets into it in his book, Pivot, as well. Um, so we'll bust that myth pretty fast. Um, so listen in. We've got a brief sponsored conversation with Chris Dreyer from Rankings.io. And then we'll dive into that conversation with Adam about pivoting and what it means to be a resilient leader. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Chris Dreyer. I'm the CEO and founder of Rankings.io. At Rankings.io, we help elite personal injury attorneys dominate first page rankings. Hey, Chris, welcome back. So today you wanted to talk about the map pack and prominence and how your case selection can impact that. So let's unpack that. What is the map pack and what does prominence mean in relation to it? Absolutely. So the map pack is the best virtual real estate below the paid ads after a search result. Mm-hmm. So it is determined by three main factors. Relevance, which is essentially using your keywords and content properly. Distance has to deal with proximity. Think, you know, if you're in a different city, you wouldn't expect to see your law firm show up in the maps. Uh, so it has to deal with proximity. It's going to appear when you're closer to that, that consumer search. Mm-hmm. And then prominence. And prominence, if you think of the word just itself, it just means being everywhere. But essentially what how Google looks at that is through you know, backlinks through content, through citations, and then review count and score. So, and I really want to emphasize the review count portion. Mm-hmm. Do we have an idea of what like the relative influence of those factors are like backlinks versus review count, for example? Yes. I don't, I don't have an exact number. I mean, backlinks is really up there. It's, you know, that's how, that's how Google was formed. It's how they use, what they use to determine how to categorize a, a listing. I would say that in many studies that I've seen, reviews is, is that second component that many individuals are looking at. So you mentioned that case selection is not necessarily intuitively something that can influence the way Google interprets your prominence. First of all, what are you talking about when it comes to case selection? Like what what is the thing that can influence it and, and how does that play out? Yeah, absolutely. So if I'm using a personal injury law firm as an example, a lot of times when they've been around in business for several years, they tend to 
become uh, more strict on their case selection criteria. What I mean by that is they're just looking for serious injuries. You know, they're looking to litigate these just, just major injuries. You want the bigger cases. Yeah, they're great cases, great return. Yeah. The downside, though, the long-term impact as it applies to SEO is when you increase your selection criteria, you don't settle as many cases. So when it comes to prominence, you, you aren't getting having the opportunity to get as many reviews. So as opposed to a firm that's just taken every case, they're going to have much more opportunity to get a lot of reviews. Fewer clients means fewer reviews. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of times this happens and you'll hear it's more of the firms that are litigating. So one of the things that I would encourage is even if you can't work with the individual client uh, or you're going to refer them out, I would still try to maybe even try to emphasize a review that, that you help them choose an attorney appropriate for their case. Right. Oh, that sounds like, so like, it's not necessarily take a bunch of low value cases so you have more clients. It's find ways to to justify getting a review from those referrals, which makes sense, right? Uh, giving a high quality referral to somebody should be something that maybe they're willing to say thank you for by giving you a review. Yeah, absolutely. If, if you helped them out there, you know, they're appreciative. If you've got their attention, then that's an opportunity to get a review. That's some three-dimensional chess, Chris. <laughs> I like that. So if you want to learn more about playing 3D chess with Rankings.io and what it might be like to work with them, visit Rankings.io slash Lawyerist to learn more about working with them. Thanks so much, Sam. Hi, I'm Adam Markell, and I, I guess my claim to fame is that I wrote a book called Pivot, The Art and Science of Reinventing Your Career in Life, which is a, a tale <laughs> in many ways of, of my transformation from 18 years in the practice of law into doing something very, very different. And what was really telling for me in writing that book and, and many years since then is the fact that I didn't need to leave the law to be able to get a lot of what I wanted. I was in quite a bit of pain. I know we're going to talk about that in this show as well. And, and there were things that were driving me to make a change. And I did ultimately make a change and wrote a book about it. But, but it's really important that I know now that I could have made those changes without actually leaving the law. I loved my work, and yet it wasn't a perfect fit for me. And I think there's a lot of people out there that uh, that are either in some form of entrepreneurial pursuit or are lawyers in a firm or are solo uh, practitioners that are also trying to find the right balance. And that word comes up a lot uh, in my circles, but uh, the right way to continue to practice and uh, also have that sense of fulfillment and just get everything they're looking for out of out of their career. And I'm hoping to be able to share some of what that looks like, that strategy and, and those tools with your folks today. Yeah. I like that you brought up the word balance because there are lots of lawyers who end up leaving the practice of law. But I also know a lot of lawyers who are trying to figure out how to stay in the practice of law and just not be miserable all the time. And I think finding that balance is exactly what what a lot of people are struggling with. Sam, that, that really is the uh, more the question I get than any other question is, do I have to leave? Mm -hmm. Because my story is a, is after 18 years having left the practice. Right. But the truth is, if I knew then what I know now, if I had the, the awareness that I have currently, I would have known 
that there were ways to stay and that I had plenty of options, not just a few, but many, many options to be able to continue to practice law and get what it was that I was looking for out of life. But I was, I was at the time anyway, and we may get into this a little bit, a bit under-resourced. <laughs> I like that way of describing it. <laughs> and I do find that a lot of lawyers are in the same boat because we're not really taught in law school about how it is that you create longevity in the practice of law. We talk a lot about resilience, and, and I know we'll get into that a bit as well. Yeah. Um, and uh, and these are just not skills that are part of the curriculum in law school, at least not when I went to law school. And there's a lot of the business of law, I should say, that, that also doesn't show up in law school curriculum. So these are things that many lawyers are discovering for the very first time um, after they've passed the bar. They you know either hang a shingle or, yeah. or get a job working for some Firm. I mean, that's a really good point. We talk a lot about how law schools aren't doing enough to teach technology and business skills, but you're right. Like, there is a thing about the way law is typically practiced that law schools just take, seem to take as a given and that we all flow into. I mean, I know from your book that yours was in many ways a typical lawyer story. You're working 60, 70, 80 hours a week until you finally end up in the ER with an anxiety attack, which, you know, I, I remember when I was practicing. It didn't surprise me when a lawyer was replaced on a case and I would sort of hear through the grapevine that they were taking some mental health days or <laughs> or weeks or months because of that. Yeah, that's totally a typical story. Sabbatical. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've heard it. I've heard it many, many times. I, was, I mean, for me, it was in, I wasn't wearing it as a badge of honor at the time. It was embarrassing. I, I really felt right. very disempowered by the fact that my my body just decided to kind of say, hold up. I mean, really held up a, a red a red flag in front of me uh, when I ended up on a Saturday morning on my way to our son's baseball game. And I ended up in the emergency room lying on a gurney and thinking, really thinking, this is it. I'm done. I'm not going to even see my kids. And, and that's a devastating event. And fortunately for me, I didn't have sort of recurrent anxiety that would lead me to that precipice, so to speak. Um, although six months after leaving the hospital that day, getting my diagnosis, which was that I was overstressed and been drinking too much coffee, sleeping too little, you know, the doctor kind of went over mm -hmm. how it was that I could get so wound up to the point where I thought my heart was literally going to bust. And, uh, you know, sort of six months later, after, after, getting a reprieve, really getting a second chance at it, <laughs> I was right back to my old habits. I mean, I walked in the house late one night and probably a lot of people listening to this can, can identify with this one too. I missed the kids. I missed the kids going to bed. I missed dinner and missing dinner was kind of a regular affair, but, uh, but to not even be able to kiss them goodnight, read them a bedtime story. I mean, that's why my wife and I, we had four kids and because we love kids and I wanted to be that kind of a dad that was home and, and around them. And so I walk in the house. It's one of these cold, rainy nights in, in New Jersey in the middle of fall. And I could see the look on my wife, Randy's face immediately. As soon as I walked in the door, I knew I'd, I'd done it again. You, you fucked up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's called the look. I mean, yeah. no, no shit. It's literally called the look in our house. <laughs> I walk right up to her and I said, if I keep doing what I'm doing, you're going to be a widow. Yeah. And she, you know, she took a big breath right there 
and, and looked at me and, and I looked at her and, and she just said, we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the really wonderful things about my pivot. And I think it's, it's invaluable to have people, and I don't even know what the right words, it's a blessing to have someone in your life, whether it's your spouse or some close friend or just somebody that you can be that real with. And their response to, to your vulnerability as, as Randy's response to me was not to remind me of all my responsibilities. You know, we had right. houses, cars, kids, gerbils, dogs. I mean, you know, I had a lot on my shoulders, plenty of clients and, and responsibilities. And she didn't remind me of that. She just, she just said, we'll figure it out. And, and the good news there, and I think this is the part that I want, I want folks to hear, is that I didn't have to have a midlife crisis. And Randy and I together were able to plan a midlife calling instead. And that's really what the book is about. Mm -hmm. And to answer sort of the first question you brought up, does having a midlife calling, let's say, instead of a midlife crisis mean you have to leave the practice of law? And it just didn't. I could have had a midlife calling within the professional field that I had spent so much time developing my skills, et cetera. And, uh, And that's what I wasn't aware of. But that's where I'm sure our conversation is going to lead today as well. Yeah. Well, and let's so so you've you've set up your pivot. Our most of our listeners probably understand mine, which probably not surprisingly revolves around kids as well. Uh, finding myself in the delivery room with my laptop open and thinking, screw this, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I feel like when you talk about what it means to pivot, you you kind of divide that into two places, which is changing what you believe and changing how you behave. I think what you've just described and and what I experienced and what most people experience is there is eventually a moment where you you make that that realization that this can't go on. It's right? intolerable. Is that what changing what you believe is? You can pivot by design, meaning that you plan a pivot. Mm-hmm. We'll probably talk about that a little bit. And then there is pivot by disruption. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't wait for things to get too disruptive. I mean, we know that in, in the practice of law, there's just intense pressure and both deadline pressure as well as results, delivering results pressure. Mm-hmm. And unless you're a lawyer of practice or worked in a law firm or around lawyers, you don't really understand what that's like. Right. But doctors understand. And there are other professions that understand. Lawyers are, I think, third on the list when it comes to suicide. Doctors are first. Um, lawyers have very high rates, incidents of substance abuse and addictions. Um, we know that there are lots of ethical issues that come up when lawyers are not able to cope at work, including malpractice, et cetera. So there's just all of this pressure mm-hmm. on us. And at a certain point, if we don't deal with some of the things that we're feeling, some of the signs that we're receiving from, from the inside, they're really signs that start on the inside and aren't necessarily manifesting on the outside. For me, you know, one of those outer signs was I started to lose my hair. I was <laughs> agitated a lot. I was a litigator. Yeah. So, I mean, being agitated doesn't seem like it's... Uh, Real quick, what, what was your practice area? I, I mostly did litigation, commercial uh, work. Gotcha. I did some employment law, like a lot of soul practitioners or small practice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, attorneys in small firms, you tend to do uh, whatever walks in the door for a period of time <laughs> at the beginning until yep. you find your niche, right? The thing that you love doing. Which adds its own stress to it. Oh, no yeah. kidding. Yeah. Because you could, it's like you're operating on a new body every day, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> you know, but, but with a new surgery that you've never done before. Mm-hmm. By disruption, I mean that we sometimes have to change. Pivot's a word for change. So, you know, another way of saying how we evolve, of course. But, but sometimes the way we evolve, the way we change is forced upon us because we ignore all these signs. And that's pivot by disruption. 
And pivot by design is really where it is that you more take a proactive approach to the, the fact that things must change. It's the universe itself that is constantly changing. It's everywhere around us in nature. So we're no exception to the rule. Um, and, and so for me, yeah, one of the things that I discovered was that my beliefs were really at the root of why I behaved the way I did. And as you said, there's two essential elements to how we're built. And, and that is that we have certain beliefs that we've been programmed to believe certain things from the time we're kids and or, or wherever it is that we've adopted those beliefs from. And then we behave in accordance with those belief systems. You can't get around that equation. So if you want to change the behaviors, like looking at how what are your habits, the things that you're doing on, a, on an unconscious level, and even the things you, that you ritualize, that you do more intentionally. You're doing all of those things. I do everything habitually and, and ritualistically mm -hmm. based on what I believe deep down inside. So without examining those things, it's tough for us to change. So once you've had that epiphany of like, something's got to change, how do you, because I think this is the, the real hard part that I struggle with because, you know, we're in the business of trying to help people change their lives, you know, on our end, it's business. But how do you make yourself change how you behave? What is the thing that makes you get out the front door for the first of many runs and it sticks for the last time or that gets you to say, you know what, I don't need to work 70 hours a week and I'm going to start down the path of change. Like, what have you found is, is what triggers people to actually change the way they behave, not just to think about it and complain about how things are? My experience is that it's pain, <laughs> right? Yep. And for me, it was pain. And so having written this book and, and gotten to speak on stages and places all across the globe to you know, many more than 100,000 people at this point, I, I've made a lot of lawyers along the way. A lot of times the people I'm speaking to are uh, GCs or, or other folks that are, are involved in, in, um, in companies, even entrepreneurs. And then I always have lawyers that are in the crowd that come up to me as well. And part of what they will say is, you know, I'm, I'm just not in enough pain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> to change. You know, things are sort of mediocre, maybe, maybe they're not, they just don't feel like they should, or they're not what I dreamed of. But aren't they a little bit like a boiling frog, right? Like, cause the pain ratchets up slowly and you actually are in enough pain. It's just that you don't have a contrast because last week it was a little bit less painful and the week before that, you know, yeah. like, you know what I mean? Well, it's, you know what it is very much an up and down line. Some days you feel like you can't take another second of it. It's excruciating. And other days you're just mm -hmm. exhilarated that you didn't get, you know, that somehow you didn't, you didn't end up on a, you know, in a bloody heap on the floor in court or with your partners or that the thing you thought maybe you committed, maybe there was some, some, uh, uh, I'll say uh, <laughs> neglect, or maybe something was going to come around that you, you. Now you're carrying the paranoia around with you. Exactly. And... It, it's all those things kind of up and down, up and down, up and down. And it's very jarring to the system. So just the way, the way we're wired, where we're constantly on the lookout by our genetic makeup. DNA-wise, the, the way our brains are actually constructed, we're constantly on the hunt for what is hunting us. Right. But when you're in the practice of law, that is heightened to a level that's that's beyond even the you know, sort of the the ordinary things that people worry about in daily life. So you're sort of a professional warrior. I was. I used to say that. <laughs> Yeah. No, that, that's what being a lawyer is. Absolutely. Right. I'd say I can't win without worry. I would say that. But what that means mm -hmm. is that we're kind of, we're, we are producing 
this low level or experiencing this low level anxiety and not so low at times. Some, some of those days, the level of anxiety is quite high, mm -hmm. but there's sort of this, this undercurrent of anxiety, this low level anxiety that's running throughout the day and not just throughout the day. It would run, as you said, at times when, we're, when we wanna be present elsewhere, whether it's with our family, our friends, our kids, whoever it is that we're wanting to be present, but yet that's what's running you know, sort of under the surface. That's a program that's that's still open. And it would hit me in the middle of the night. I would have trouble falling asleep. Mm. I would get up sometimes two, mm -hmm. three in the morning and just go use the restroom. And I would start thinking about cases. I would start thinking about clients. I would think about what 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 could go wrong or did I screw something up? I mean, it was all those things that were producing cortisol on a regular basis. And, and for folks that maybe aren't familiar with that term, mm -hmm. a cortisol is just a chemical that our bodies produce when we're in fight or flight when we're constantly producing this cortisol in our bodies, it is at a certain point very depleting to us. So we we are finding ourselves exhausted and it needs another, you know, the third or the fourth cup of coffee to get over the hurdle of the, <laughs> the next piece of chocolate or- Or drink or drugs or, yeah. Or, you, you know, losing your shit on somebody too. So because yeah. that's an addiction as well. I, I was addicted, you know, fortunately, I didn't screw up my marriage and, and I'm still married to the, this- love of my life for 30 <laughs> plus years now. Um, I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't get involved with drugs or alcohol, but man, I'll tell you something. I was addicted to anger. Yeah. I was, I was addicted to ripping people a new one in every opportunity I could through what I was doing as a litigator. I didn't have language at the time for it, but what I, I could look back and say now about it was that I felt my soul, whatever that thing is that it, mm -hmm. this part of myself that I, couldn't even define that I'll call my soul now, just felt it withering on the inside. Like my heart was dying and that the, the essence of me was, was just uh, being altered in a way that, that was painful until I couldn't look past it anymore in the mirror or elsewhere. So <laughs> that's depressing. <laughs> yeah. But, but on that note, <laughs> we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we come back I want to talk a little bit more about some of the myths that you point out that really resonated with me that I think are different than what we often hear about um, about recovering and pivoting and, and in the way that other people sometimes describe it. So we'll be right back to talk about that. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist company exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers unlimited calls. Betty's Boutique Service boasts customized call handling and virtual assistant services provided by highly trained, relentlessly friendly team members ready to help grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetty's.com lawyers to get a free one-week trial and use the promo code podcast to receive $150 off your first month of service. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, a search engine optimization agency working exclusively for personal injury law firms. Simply put, Rankings.io helps personal injury law firms dominate first-page rankings. You'll never have to chase them for an update or hunt them down for an answer. Your clients expect you to be accessible, and Rankings will meet that standard for communication and transparency. You'll have a full team of SEO specialists fighting to put you at the top of Google search results. Personal injury lawyer SEO is all they do, so all their processes, playbooks, and people are completely focused on generating qualified cases for your firm. Best of all, you'll be one of an elite few, delivering access 
exceptional service and results requires focus, so Rankings.io carefully vets clients before accepting them. It's an ideal fit for growth-oriented personal injury law firms. To see if you're a fit, visit rankings.io slash lawyerist to get started. Lawyerist podcast listeners can get 20% off an SEO discovery audit using coupon code lawyerist. Boost your productivity and save time typing with Text Expander. You can make your own snippets or share and manage snippets for your firm with Text Expander for Teams. You'll reduce errors and increase productivity. Text Expander can save you so much time, it's like getting an extra employee. Text Expander is available for Mac, Windows, iPhone, iPad, and Chrome. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com/podcast to learn more and get your discount. Okay, Adam, so we're back. Um, we were talking about what it means to pivot, um, how to change what you believe, how to change how you behave. Um, and in your book, you walk through some myths, and you, you outlined six of them, but two of them really resonated with me. And the first one is myth number three, that pivoting doesn't have to mean sudden radical change. And to me, that was like, it feels contrary to everything that everyone else is preaching about. You know, you're unhappy with your life, yes. buy a sailboat and Jump go to ship. the Bahamas. Um, so say more about what it should look like. <laughs> There's a lot of conventional wisdom, I'd say, and teaching about this or writing. It's mm -hmm. you know, sharing that to make a change, you've got to do something radical. I think we're built that way, that if we want something a lot better, not just a little bit better, no, not not, that's not really a great motivator, mm -hmm. but if we want something a lot better in our lives, we've got to do something really drastic to create that. And I suppose if you wait until you are literally at the point of explosion, that you might just be heading in that way. For anyway. sure. I mean, you could be heading for a wall, but my, my experience is it's small changes, incremental changes over time that create the greatest possibility of sustainable transformations or something mm -hmm. really good happening, something that's more in line with what your heart might be telling you you want or what some feeling on the inside is that that feels like there's something more. You know, I, I won't use this, the, the language of personal development in this context with, with other lawyers typically because it just gets, <laughs> you know, it is, there's a, a chuckle about it because it doesn't seem tangible or real. Uh, so I'll stick to, to what I, I know from my own personal experience was that I wasn't going to tell my wife that day when I said to her, if I keep doing what I'm doing, you're going to be a widow. I wasn't going to tell her I'm quitting my job. That wasn't my plan. And when she said, she knew it. That's why when she said to me, we'll figure it out. She knew I had no plan to move to Fiji. You know, Fiji would have been great. <laughs> it would have been terrific. I have a TED talk that's all, you know, that addresses that uh, as well. But that wasn't going to be the plan. I, I knew what I had to do. And, and I knew that what I also had to do was not ignore the writing that's on the wall. That's that Spencer Johnson book, I think, called Who Moved My Cheese? We just, to ignore the writing on the wall is like going into a court case, ignoring every fact that is against your case. I mean, that's just, would be, a recipe for disaster. And, and yet we do that all the time. We just keep pretending that things aren't the way they are. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of the first, the first rule of thumb that I, I remember reading this in a book called Karmic Management some years ago. It, the first rule is to stop doing what doesn't work. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Which so is obvious. You go, it's profound, right? But totally. <laughs> Needs to happen. Right. But that's, <laughs> that's insanity that we continue to do same, the same things, but somehow expect it. You know, it's all going to change. So mm -hmm. busting myths is a big deal in, in the book Pivot because there's this 
mindset that's at work, that we as lawyers are paid to know things. And the more we know on some level, the more we get to charge hourly, right? <laughs> the, more, the more money we bring in, yeah. the more we know. <laughs> and so it's counterintuitive, but we've got to, when we're looking at making change within the context of, of the law profession, right? Just like I didn't need to move to Fiji, I didn't need to jump ship from my life. People don't have to jump ship from the law. That's not what's required. Even though I made that change, doesn't mean anybody else has to, frankly. What we have to do is learn how to unbelieve certain things. Remember we said earlier that the, the structure is that we believe things and then we behave in accordance with those beliefs. Mm -hmm. Whatever we make something mean is, is what will produce our actions. So to examine why we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and cannot seem to, to make a meaningful change that, that produces something more that we want, we've got to go back to the beliefs and then we've got to look at not only what do we believe, but where is it possible for us to actually unbelieve certain things. And one of those areas to unbelieve is this fallacy that we've actually got to do something drastic to see something meaningful change. Um, and, and so to me, if you, you look at, there's so many different examples of what small change can produce over time mm -hmm. that, that it's, it's shocking. We talk about a lot about the 1% rule, like just exactly. make things 1% better. And then by the end of the year, they'll be 365% better if you do it every day. So it's the compounding effect. It, it's small, consistent things that are, are done that produce a change over time. I mean, look, look at, Dominoes, for example. Um, <laughs> I don't know what the record is for Dominoes tipping over, but I'll, I'm Googling it while you talk. <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm going to make a guess. So here's this is fun. We'll, we'll just take a stab at it. I'm going to say it's a 1.2 million mm -hmm. that somebody, <laughs> some group of people set up 1.2 million Dominoes and one tiny little Domino started the, the whole thing and knocked them all over. We'll see because Sam's going to find out in a second. But what most people don't know, and what's great about that is that you can see how one tiny little domino has this domino effect. And that's why a small change in direction will produce a new result over time, for sure. It's, it's the math of it. You can't get around that. But what many people don't understand about the domino effect is it's not just about one domino being able to lead to the next and to the next and to the next so that at some point you're in momentum. And as you said, it's 1%, 1%, 1%. All of a sudden you look and you've, you've made great improvements. And you've toppled 4,491,863 dominoes. Holy smokes. <laughs> Four and almost four and a half million dominoes. So I was like a quarter right. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's remarkable. All right. So this is the thing that shocked me, which is that a domino doesn't have the capacity just to knock over another domino. It'll knock over another domino that's slightly bigger than itself. Yeah. And so when you start out, and I've seen this demonstration before with a domino that's less than a half an inch high, it'll knock over another domino that's almost twice that size. And you can get to a car within the space of a driveway and you can crush a car with a domino. It's amazing. Well, here's, here's what's really credible. I'll say it's credible, not incredible, that by the 28th domino, just setting up the scenario I was painting, half inch domino knocks over another one that's twice its size. By the 28th domino, that domino is the size of the Empire State. Yeah. So that's what small actions mean over time. So for us, I left the practice of law over the course of two and a half years. I didn't call up my clients and say, I'm winding down your cases. I'm closing up the shop because I can't handle it anymore. You know, it didn't need to get to that place because once I knew that we were working on our plan B, then 
I became more mm. resourced. I was more motivated to find ways to elegantly, gracefully leave a particular area of my life that had served me well. I mean, very well. I loved the impact that I had through my practice of law. And yet it was 18 years. It was a season in my life and it wasn't the only season I was going to experience. <laughs> I like that way of saying it. And so for the lawyers that are out there right now that are thinking to themselves, you know what, maybe, maybe it, it might be that I'm not going to stay in the law for the, for the, you know, the duration, who knows, we could be living to 120 now. I mean, right. there are ways for us to just live longer and stronger. It might mean that it, you retire from the law and at some point do something else that's also possible. But for us, we needed to be planning that. I wasn't going to just say, you know, I've, I've had it, uh, you know, and, and I, I love that ex description of you should, just jump out of the plane, um, you know, because the parachute's <laughs> going to open as you fall. <laughs> you know, like yeah, just right. trust the parachute's going to open when. Look, I was a lawyer for crying out loud. Yeah, that just do that way, way too much worry for me. Yeah. But but the second myth I want to talk about is sort of the, at the other end of that, which is the idea that you have to wait for. Uh, I have to wait for this big case to come in, or you're you know you're right. This is intolerable. I'll start planning it just as soon as I have some space in my schedule. You can't just wait forever because then you'll never make that change, which is another thing that I see all the time um, where lawyers don't make space for improving their firms or their lives or whatever because the grind of the day-to-day -day is just way easier to pay attention to. Oh, yeah. I mean, you see it in, in the health space a lot where people will say, I'm too unhealthy to exercise, actually. I'm too large. I'm too heavy to... Oh, I'm waiting for spring. That's my excuse. But... She goes, so I'm, <laughs> I'm waiting I'm waiting till I lose 10 pounds before I start exercising. We all hmm. get that that's not the way it works. You start exercising and that's when you become healthier. And it's the same thing with this, which is you, you cannot continue to put off the truth. Hmm. You know, we're in the truth business. I know that's, I'm going to wink when I say that to the lawyers <laughs> out there listening, right? But we are in the truth business. And I am a lawyer. I will always be a lawyer. I just don't practice law anymore. But I, I, I rely on my, my lawyer skills constantly in contracts and in so many areas. I mean, just looking at business. I, mean, I was constantly looking at, at success and failure in business in, in a very realistic, pragmatic way. And the fact of the matter is that there's no better time than now to start planning something for the future. So, you know, we have a house on the, on the Cape, Cape Cod, for those that don't know that area, mm -hmm. but there's a beautiful <laughs> waterway that we have to drive over to, to get to our place. And we were driving over some years ago. We noticed that they were doing some construction. It's a draw bridge. And so these sailboats can go under. So we pulled over and asked what was going on. And they said, well, this bridge is likely not to survive another one of these nor'easters that, that are famous up in that area and at various times of the year. And so we're building another bridge. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, this is like the exactly what we were writing about. This is the metaphor I've been waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> this is the metaphor we've been waiting for, right? So I said to Randy, my wife, I go, this is perfect. Exactly. You don't tear down the first bridge. Mm -hmm before you start building the second one. You start building that second bridge, whatever it is, as you say, if it's improving the firm, if it's looking at where you could scale this, if, it, if it's picking a retirement date for yourself, if it's whatever it might mean that would assist you in, in finding what you're looking for, either within the practice of law or outside the practice of law, you don't wait. And also to the point you made earlier, you don't tear down the first bridge mm -hmm. before you've got something else built, because then what would have happened if they tore down that bridge? We'd all been stranded on either side, right? <laughs> right. But the metaphor you just 
you said, gets better over time, which is that a year or so later, that new bridge was constructed. The old bridge was torn down. We're driving over the same bridge the following summer, and we see them like start another construction project. We're like, this is this classic, right? It's mm-hmm. millions of dollars. It's many years later. You know, what the heck are they doing now? And we pulled over and asked again. And they said, well, that bridge we built was the temporary bridge. <laughs> you know, we didn't know when that other one was going to go down. We, re- we quickly put up the temporary bridge. Now we're, built, we're building the 100-year bridge, the sort of semi-permanent bridge. And I thought this is, this is really the essence of the pivot process. Mm-hmm. You're, you make small changes, not anticipating that you're done making small changes. I want to just say that again. We make small changes on a regular basis not anticipating that that's going to be the end of the, the small changes. Pivoting is a, is an everyday practice. And some are micro pivots and some are more macro pivots. But it's this idea that we're constantly looking at where it is that we can self-disrupt versus waiting for the market to disrupt us, waiting for our health to create a disruption for us, waiting for our, our marriage or relationships or the clients that we're holding on to with our fingernails. You know, Any of those things are likely to change. They're all likely to change and, and they might well change before you plan. And so the idea of looking at the landscape and self-disrupting that landscape on a, on a regular and a continuous basis and not playing that, that myth out that it's, it's always, tomorrow's always a better day when things will mm-hmm. be easier for me financially. That's when I'll be able to bring in a new assistant or I'll be able to make the changes structurally to the firm that I believe are in the best interests of, of everybody there and of our clients and all those things that we sort of are putting off for a day when we're more ready to deal with the disruption. Yep. Start meaning don't finish. Finishing happens later, but just get started and get yeah. started now. You start now and and you adjust the course because the pivoting thing doesn't end. It's it's constantly very similar to a GPS that you're you're always able to navigate to the place that you want to go from any place. Mm-hmm. But the route is going to be different. And that's all we need to know is that we're we're if we just constantly are looking at where it is that we can change and correct our course in some way. And, and often those are just the slightest of changes, 1% or, or five degree changes in the direction, the trajectory will change. And you'd hardly even be able to look back at it at that moment, you know, six months or a year later and look back at, and, and you think that was such a tiny change. I can't imagine that I'd, I'd have created what I've created or things would have evolved the way they have. And yet that's the physics of it. That's not the mm-hmm. woo. This is nothing will change unless you get that first piece done. Exactly. But you got to be resilient. And that's that's the uh, a key ingredient. That- Thank you for that excellent, excellent segue, because that's where I was going. So you, you mentioned that you've pivoted at least twice in your own life and career. Um, and the second was to kind of take that concept of pivoting, but um, build it out in the direction of resilience and what that means for leadership. And, and it sounds like that's more of the work that you're doing now is how to be a resilient leader, which I think is probably going to resonate with a lot of our listeners who are trying to figure out their own path towards being successful entrepreneurs, which requires a hell of a lot of resilience. It does. In the book, Pivot, there's a section about resilience. So the way I was envisioning it at the time was that the big circle was pivot Mm -hmm. and the little circle within it was this idea of being resilient. And then for a period of time, I was thinking, no, 
my experience has taught me that it's resilience. It's a skill of resilience that contains within it mm. this subset of skills called pivot, which is, again, how it is that you change, how is you examine your beliefs so that ultimately you can change your habitual behaviors. But what I real, realize now is that these are, are sort of two co-equal things, and they, they certainly overlap. There's a Venn diagram where the overlapping area shows that in order to make sustainable changes ongoingly in, in one's life and one's business, we have to be resilient. And as part of being resilient, we also have to know that change is healthy, that it's not something that we are, are pushing away or resisting. And so resilience is, is a big topic and, uh, and something we can maybe just cover quickly here. Well, yeah, tell me, tell me more about it. So like wh when you're talking about what it means to be a resilient leader, um, I mean, yeah, I, I took your resilience leader assessment. I did okay, I guess. Um, but I but I was reading the materials you sent along with it, and you presented a formula. Um, so maybe you can tell us what is the formula and what do we need to do to to work it. Well, the research is clear about a few things. So people say, well, what is resilience, Adam? And I'll first say, I'll tell you what it's not. Mm -hmm. It's not endurance. And I think lawyers especially have to hear this: that endurance is the model that that has us look at Rocky and, and we smile to just to think of Rocky, you know, Sylvester mm -hmm. Stallone, <laughs> the first Rocky movie. Remember that? Da, da, da. <laughs> you know, the, I remember seeing that movie when I was like eight or nine years old and getting out of the theater, running to the car, running past the car, you know, my, with my dad, I was so excited because Rocky, he gets knocked down and knocked down and knocked down again and again and again. And every time he gets knocked down, Sam, what does he do? He gets right back he gets up. Gets right back. Up. I mean, as long as he's conscious at the moment, right? <laughs> but in the end, I mean, this is the thing: he wins our hearts, but he loses the fight. And as I, I like to say to my my friends from the East Coast sometimes, and he don't look too good either, right? <laughs> in the end, he's all banged up. Rocky is, and that's a lot of a lot of people that are are playing this endurance game. Do more and more with less and less. That's part mm -hmm. of the corporate mantra for many, many years since 2008, certainly. And, and exhaustion is an epidemic in our, our world, not just in the lawyer world, but in the business world itself. Mm -hmm. uh, but lawyers in particular are, are constantly running themselves on empty. And we know what happens when you do that for a period of time. You, you end up crashing. You end up going in the ditch. All those things that we talked about, whether it's substances right. or it's malpractice or it's just misery, really, unhappiness <laughs> that, that, that will put you in that ditch. So resilience is learning that we can cultivate a way of being that enables us to not only go the distance so that we get longevity, but also increases our performance. I worked at a, a place when I was 19 years old, a beach. I was a lifeguard at Jones Beach on the south shore of, of Long Island, New York, where the Atlantic Ocean was very, very strong, major rip currents. And the the state of the of the beach at the time, uh, and still to this day, being a very rough place to swim, um, unfortunately was also attached to the fact that this beach, this particular beach was where they bust people in from the city to, to experience the beach and to be able to go to the ocean, mm, you know, mm -hmm. and get out of the city, et cetera. So we'd get like a hundred thousand patrons on the beach on a Saturday or Sunday. I can't even fathom how many people that is on a half a mile stretch of sand. We would be making rescues all day long, every day. 
eight hour shifts, nine hour, 10 hour shifts. And for seven years, seven summers that I worked there, we didn't, we didn't lose anybody. Now I, I tell a story usually to start one of my keynote talks about how the first year that I was the first summer I was there, I was 19, we did lose someone. And since that experience and the devastation of seeing that happen, uh, we created a mantra for the culture of the lifeguard crew that I, I worked at that was no one goes down in our water, that no one will ever go down on our watch again. And those seven summers, I learned a lot about what it takes to be resilient mm -hmm. so that we never lost anyone again. And so there's, there's some traits that I, I both learned in that experience and then through the research on the topic of resilience that I'll share with you now. So first of all, resilience is not something that people are born with. And if they're not born with it, then they don't have it. It can be learned. It can be taught. It can be trained at any age. And that's the really, that's the good part of this. And we've hit upon three things in particular that are traits of resilient people. And the first is that resilient people know or have learned how to look at situations and and reframe them. They look at situations and are able to find the inherent meaning in them. And, and this is really important for lawyers because we are very pragmatic. We are very practical. It's not like we're walking around typically with rose-colored glasses. So it doesn't require that you do that, but it does require hmm. that you start to rewire your brain to actually look for where the glass is half full. <laughs> right. Not only to observe where the glass is half empty as we're paid to do often, but to see where the glass is half full. Where could it be half full? Is that kind of like what they're always talking about in Silicon Valley about like fail fast because failing is how you learn because you're seeing those as lessons, not failures. Absolutely. Because there, you know, every time you make a mistake, for example, you might feel badly about it and you might feel threatened by it, but you're learning something about what doesn't work. And this is the key that, that I don't hear folks talk about too much, which is that when you know what doesn't work, you know what does work. Mm -hmm. When you know what you don't want, you know what you do want. And so, for example, I just like any area of your life, you could create a T-chart where on the left-hand side of the T-chart are all the things that I know I don't want or all I think the things I know don't work, you know. And what you know by examining those things, by actually focusing on the things that went wrong, is that you learn what you do want or you learn what does work. By extension, you get great clarity. So this idea of being able to look at situations and find the creative opportunities in them is a reframe where you find the meaning in those things and you reframe them. So that's the first characteristic of a resilient leader. The second characteristic is somebody who can do what we said earlier, which is to be able to recalibrate, recalculate your position because wherever you are, you can get to where you want to go, but you may have to make changes to your direction. In the car, we know that when you make a wrong turn, your GPS doesn't shout out, you idiot. <laughs> right. It, it's just like your father always said, you can't listen to directions, <laughs> right? Your GPS doesn't speak to you that way, I don't think. Maybe. Maybe. there might. I'm sure there's a plug-in. Right. <laughs> more, more often than not, the GPS will simply, in you know, maybe it's in a, like a beautiful British accent or something, it's right. recalculating, right? You just mm -hmm. make a right. It just tells you, make a right turn up here. And, and it recalculates a way to get to your destination. And so that idea of recalculating our position, of revisioning, creating a new vision for where it is we want to go. It could be that we want to take our little firm that's driving us crazy, you know, because for whatever reason, you know, this small firm um, has to grow. 
And it's it, it could be that that's the issue that we're looking to do. It could be that we've grown too fast and we're having growing pains. It doesn't matter what the thing is. We've got to re-examine the vision for our lives and, and for our careers and for our businesses on a regular basis because that's what resilient leaders do. And the third piece of this, which is the most unpopular among lawyers, I would say, <laughs> is that you've got you've to learn how to recover because I said earlier that resilience is not about endurance, but it is about recovery. That's what all the research is. I mean, if you could imagine yourself in your current state, whatever that is, as an Olympic athlete, you're, you're an Olympic lawyer, let's say, or, or an Olympic entrepreneur, an Olympic business owner, whatever that is, but you were treating yourself like an Olympian. Hmm. You could be sure that your sleep would look different, that the food you were eating would look different, that the way you took care of your mind your body, your emotional states even, that those things would be different based upon the fact that you were preparing for the Olympic event. And so recovery is the essence of resilience. As we said earlier, because we're running organizations that are driven by exhaustion, and there's a, a massive, by the way, cost of exhaustion in the United States alone for businesses is more than a half a trillion dollars. Just the cost in, in health and safety, uh, issues in turnover, you know, being not able to, to retain talent and having to attract new talent. And the list goes on and on. And when you look at the concerns of general counsel across the board of things that they are concerned about in regard to the businesses where they're performing that function, health and safety concerns and the cost of exhaustion is the lowest on the rung. It is, it is mm -hmm. low on the totem pole. But we need to move it up. And it is a blind spot for sure. Yes. Especially for ourselves. Especially for us. I mean, Sam, <laughs> yeah. you, how, how are you going to be able to show up for anybody, your clients, your kids, your family, your friends? How can you show up for anybody if you are at sort of 80, you're running on 80% more often than not? Mm -hmm. you're, just, you're just not at, at your optimal best. And so when it comes to productivity, you know, I get that complaint a lot. Well, I still got to bill all my hours. I may still got to put the time in, don't I? And I say, yes, you may still have to do that. But it, it, this is about how it is that you increase productivity and longevity by making small changes, which is in part why we asked you to fill out that, that survey, Sam, that yeah. the, the resilient leader assessment tool is about identifying where you are in these four quadrants, mental, emotional, physical, and, and even spiritual, which is not religious, but about being aligned with your highest values. And where are you in those four quadrants when it comes to certain beliefs that you've got, certain behaviors, et cetera. And what's great is that you get a score and then there are resources that come later on to say, here's how you might tweak this. Here's a pivot that you could, you could entertain to improve it. Um, I'm happy to provide that link uh, as well. Yeah, no, I, I will. I think that's actually a nice place for us to wrap up because uh, I've almost monopolized all of the time that we we're able to to take today. So I took the the uh, the resilient leader assessment as well, and I will include that link in the show notes so people can just tap on it or click on it and go take it. And and obviously a link to your book Pivot, which uh, fleshes out the ideas we were discussing in, in a lot more detail and I think answers the question which we didn't really get to, which is, you know, okay, so I'm ready to change how do I behave? What are the steps I need to go to through? And obviously that's in the book. So it is the crazy tale of a lawyer leaving the practice of law. <laughs> every every <laughs> time I go. get a lawyer walk up to me and go, oh my goodness, how in the world did you do it? I say, well, it's really simple and this is the answer. You do it one 
baby step at a time. Maybe that's the hardest thing, you know, is that um, the answers to all of these how how could you do this things are actually it's really simple. You just do it. Um, and though that almost feels uh, unsatisfying, even though that's that's real. There's there's no trick to it. Just just start doing it. Well, and you'll get there. I'd say if there's any trick at all, it's that you you have support. And by that, I mean, you support yourself with the right thoughts upon waking. If we've got 30 seconds, I'll share my waking yeah. ritual. But you, you support yourself with the right thoughts upon waking and throughout the day, right thinking. And then to the extent that it's possible that you are around other people that are willing to support you and look at you and see the possibility of your life and not constantly reflect the limitations of your own thinking as well as their own fears about what would happen if you did something different, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's that's really the best you can hope for uh, is to just create an environment where you've got people around you that are, are willing to support you and you're doing the job first. And so my, my waking ritual is very simple. This is a TED talk I gave about a year ago. People can find it on YouTube as well. But it, it's simply waking up in the morning and planting a seed at the very first moment that you're waking up, that's very powerful. And so we all get it, but we don't think about it, that there's no guarantee when we go to sleep the night before that we're going to actually get to wake up. And nobody's going to argue the fact that as you're waking up, as you woke up this morning, you took your first breath of the day and you opened your eyes, there were people who were closing their eyes and taking their last breath at that very same moment. And that's real. So when you wake up tomorrow, and I'm this is a hope and a prayer for, for you, Sam, for everybody listening to all of us, for all of us, that we get to wake up and in that waking moment that we can feel grateful for the day, grateful for the gift of that day and whatever that means. There's so many things to so just be grateful for something in that moment. And then if you even have the audacity to open your mouth and say something out loud, that's, that's pretty extreme. I started saying this about 10 years ago. It's four simple words, takes less than 10 seconds. And it has been a game changer for me. This is an essential pivot when it comes to that mindset component. And I wake up, I think about something I'm grateful for. I put my feet in the floor and I say these words, I love my life. I love my life. Do you love your life, Sam? Oh yeah. I don't say it very much though. <laughs> well, there you go, man. That reminds me of a podcast we recently did with Vanessa Van Edwards, where she talked exactly about that concept, which is sometimes saying a thing makes it so. Over time. So just so we're clear, right? Yeah. Habits, you know, people talk about how long does it take to create a habit? 21 days, 30 days, 65 days. I've heard all these kinds of things. I think I've heard 33 most recently yeah. for what it's worth. Forget, <laughs> yeah, I will say this. Forget that. I, I think that's uh, that's not the case. It's about repetition. Yeah. You know, when you've created a habit is when, when you repeat something enough times that you don't have to think about doing it. You wake up and it could be two months from now, it could be two years from now that you wake up and you're no longer thinking about, oh, I want to start my day with that thing. You don't want to plant that seed. You just wake up, put your feet in the floor, go, you know what? I feel really lucky I'm, I'm, I'm alive. I feel grateful for my, my friends, my family, my body, whatever it is. And then, and then you might even say spontaneously, you know what? I do love my life. Let's see. All right. Adam, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. I really appreciate it. And once again, uh, we will include links to some of the, the things we've talked about in the show notes. So um, thanks so much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Are you interested in implementing the ideas you've heard on today's podcast into your law firm? Could you use a little help? 
Hey guys, it's Stephanie, the VP of Community Success here at Lawyers, and I'd love to help you tackle your business or take it to the next level. Head over to go.lawyers.com backslash start to sign up for a quick call with me, and let's talk about how Lawyerist can help you create your best law firm. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app, and please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist podcast is edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Thank you.